The lush green and rolling hills of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. A hot, steamy, fly-infested, yet beautiful and bucolic community. July 1863, just 70 miles northwest of Washington, D.C., the bustling capital of a divided and severely wounded nation. Gettysburg was a crossroads. The routes extended from its center like the spokes on a bicycle wheel. Beautiful country, ridges and bridges, real nice people, but its main feature during the Great Civil War was its geographic centrality. My great-great-great-cousin, the very Reverend Thaddeus H. Russell, and my great-great-great-uncle, Thessalonius P. Russell, resided on either side of the line dividing the Union from the Confederates in America's Great Civil War. Now, Thaddeus was Presbyterian. His folks were. He was baptized as such, and he preached the gospel in several small towns in southeastern Pennsylvania. But he used to like to dance on Saturday nights up in Harrisburg. Now, Thessalonius was a bookworm, an Episcopalian pastor, and was not an interesting personality, unlike your desert flower of country music and host, me, Sky, Kennedy, Lindbergh, Russell. Yep, Sky's distant relatives was preachers, one in Pennsylvania and the other from Northern Virginia. But this story has very little to do about Thaddeus and Thessalonius, except that they are both, well, long gone. And now, back to the Civil War and the battle at Gettysburg. There were stores and warehouses there, and rumor had it, there was a delightful supply of shoes and boots. You know, when your army boots ain't working for you, finding new shoes might indeed become a priority. So a group of rebels swooped in to find the footwear, and well, golly, Sergeant, shabang! Perhaps of all the events of importance in the 1860s, there was these three hot, humid, stinky days in July in Gettysburg, 1863. Now looking for boots in Gettysburg was not a central part of General Robert E. Lee's design for the advance of the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee had a strategy of quietly leading a significant force north into the Union, dig in like double-dang groundhogs, wear down and deplete the resources and fledging morale of the valiant but reluctant Union soldiers in an extended battle of attrition. On July 1st, the thoroughly surprised forces of both sides fought to a stalemate, with the Union forces actually slightly back on their heels. At that point it was very painful for some, but not what you would call a huge event. But at the end of day one, both sides had called for backups. At the end of the second day, through heroic and appropriate soldiership, the Union forces held Cemetery Ridge south and east of town. Now, the roundly respected gentleman Confederate commander, General Robert E. Lee, threw down the gauntlet. So to speak, though perhaps it was just a mason jar with now-wasted cheap swill, I think he knew in his heart of hearts that one way or another the war needed to be over. Even though he was from the South, he knew that slavery was in every imaginable way wrong and despicable, but there was other concerns. Mostly though, he knew the war needed to be ended, and right soon, if there was to be a nation at all. On the second night, General Robert E. Lee, though excruciatingly disappointed by the well-intended failures of his chief scout, Jeb Stewart, and the rogue decisions 
of other senior officers chose to make a historic assault against the embedded Union forces. This led to Lee's epiphany, Pickett's Charge, one of the greatest military debacles of all time, though many would say in theory Lee could have prevailed except for the disobedience of some of his men and the inferior arms. You know, Cemetery Ridge was just a minor feature of the rolling landscape, but on the third day, just to the west, marching across a mile-wide open field, 13,000 Confederate troops, nearly arm-in-arm, arm, proceeded silently toward Cemetery Ridge. There was no shouts of Chickamauga or Chancellorsville as they proceeded across the field and up the hill. Rebel officers on handsome steeds led the way, riding and galloping back and forth in front of the infantry in a demonstration of apparent courage and valor. And then, the Union forces rose from behind the rock walls and fences and fired with carbines and the finest artillery the North could produce. In mere minutes, thousands of rebels fell. And yeah, they are gone to this day. However, them rebels was relentless. They broke through once, right through the middle. But let's say it did not work out well for them. They were either duly captured, or how might I say, casketized. A ten-letter word meaning they are forever gone. At the end of the third day, the smoke began to clear as night fell. The rebel charge had been much more than repelled. Lee had made the stand that his Episcopalian God had required of him. But my gosh, they had lost a lot of fellas. The incredibly talented and also respected Union general Ulysses S. Grant, then let Lee retreat in the pouring rain to Virginia, leading a wagon train of ravaged and vanquished Confederate soldiers that extended over 17 miles in length. Lincoln was furious. A death blow could have been dealt. But as far as I know, the respect uniformed regular soldiers have for each other on the battlefield is a pronounced and sacred tradition. The true warrior has a dignified appreciation for the honorable opponent. And I think Grant understood that vanquishing and destroying Lee's retreating soldiers would be orders of magnitude easier than keeping the peace later if he had destroyed a retreating wagon train of former and future American countrymen. The 51,000 men that died so horrifically at Gettysburg were in service to their respective sides, perhaps honor and yes duty, and likely a belief that the Almighty was bringing them forth to their righteous destiny. Of the 51,000 soldiers that met their unfortunate demise at Gettysburg, I would say that the great majority of them had plenty more fight in the dog as opposed to having a dog in the fight. They never owned slaves, large farms or plantations. As near as I can tell, that despite perfectly normal and expected, typical male reptilian predilections, there really weren't a whole lot of evil bones in the bodies of either the Confederate or Union soldiers. Some might argue. As our nation faces social turmoil today, we must look back at the incredible carnage of the Civil War and avoid it at all costs. It was not that long ago man's ability to harm other men is utterly unspeakable. Fortunately, we can look to the words, wisdom, and courage of Abraham Lincoln, who was assassinated just days after securing the peace. Or we can look to the life and words of Martin Luther King, perhaps the most eloquent orator and peacemaker of modern times. Both have offered a path to racial harmony. Or we could even consider the forever thoughtful words of former NBA All-Star Charles Barkley, 
a man of great truth and avuncular abilities. And I'll leave you with these words to ponder quietly as we move from this day from this solemn broadcast. Every time I think of having to change my daughter's diaper, I hustle a little more, I run a little faster, and I jump a little higher so I can afford a good nanny until she's old enough to take care of that for herself. Uh, Mr. Russell, can we please bring this to a close? The janitors are out in the office waiting to scrub the very floor beneath your gigantic smelly feet. In other words, next time, Sky, could you try to be a little more concise? And for now, bring your little encyclopedia to a conclusion so you could do your special damage to two more perfectly great country songs. I suppose, but only with your very substantial assistance. Sky, you are impossible. I know you tough, but I just can't help it. Behind the cloud, the sun is still shining. Abraham Lincoln. He said this, I desire so to conduct the affairs of this administration that if at the end, when I come to lay down the reins of power, I have lost every other friend on earth, I shall at least have one friend left. And that friend shall be down inside of me. Be sure to put your feet in the right place, then stand firm. I like that. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. And he said this, If I were to try to read, much less answer, all the attacks made on me, this shop might as well be closed for any other business. I do the very best I know how, the very best I can. And I mean to keep doing so until the very end. If the end brings me out all right, What's said against me won't amount to nothing. But if the end brings me out wrong, ten angels swearing I was right would make no difference. I have often been forced to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that there was no place else to go. Abraham Lincoln. Beautiful, Red. Abraham Lincoln said this too. You have to do your own growing, no matter how tall your grandfather was. Nobody can make you feel inferior without your consent. Eleanor Roosevelt. Definitely a Lincoln, first lady of the United States of America. And one of my favorites, Lincoln said this. I know there's a God and that he hates injustice. I see the storm coming and I see his hand in it. If he has a place for me, I am ready. On top of Old Smokey is a traditional American folk song. 
It has regular cowboy type lyrics. But is known to man as one of the great all-time songs you first learned at summer camp. With a different, slightly more humorous touch. The song's origins, in both lyric and tune, go back as far as the 16th century. But most analysts conveniently assume that Old Smoky refers specifically to the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. Old Smoky may be a high mountain somewhere in the Ozarks or the Central Appalachians, as the tune bears the stylistic hallmarks of the Scottish and Irish people who settled the region. That's incredible, Utah. Did you make that up? Stop it, Sky. Possibly includes Clingman's Dome, Clingman's Dome. named Smoky Dome, Smoky Dome, by the local Scottish-Irish inhabitants, but exactly which mountain it is may likely be lost to antiquity. It is unclear when and where by whom the song was first recorded. It was originally recorded with unicorns playing oversized clarinets, I heard. Moving along, Mr. Doubter, Pete Seeger modified a version that he learned in the Appalachians, writing new words and banjo music. He said that he thought that certain verses go back to Elizabethan times. Is that where you learned it? And, of course, the song is parodied often. One well-known parody version, which was a hit in 1963, On Top of Spaghetti by Tom Glazer, deals with the loss of a meatball when somebody sneezed. And it was magnificently covered by the ever-unstoppable Snuffy on the PBS children's show, Sesame Street. Thanks, Sky. As always, you are impossible. On top of Old Smokey remains in the public domain and can be found at scoutsongs.com. This one's kind of short in terms of how we play it, but it's a drop D with a capo 3. So capo 3, drop D, in other words. And you got to lead in where you're actually playing the D form, but you're really starting on a G, on top of Old Smokey. And then back to a D. And you're going to go to an A. Back to a D. And then there's kind of an Amen thing, I call it right here. A. It's not very much it's like this. On top of old smoking, all covered with snow, I lost my true lover for cotton to slow. Now cotton's a pleasure. Stars in the sky. 
So come you young maidens And listen to me Never place your affection On a green willow tree For the leaves they will wilt there And the roots they will die You'll all be forsaken and never know why On top of spaghetti All covered with cheese I lost my poor meatball With somebody sneezed It rolled off the And then my poor people rolled out of the door On top of all smoky, all covered with snow I lost my true lover for cotton too slow